0: And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 198. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm so glad you're here. This week is a repeat guest, Mr. Steven Rinaldi. Steven is an SEC attorney, and he first appeared on the podcast back in episode 15, way back in 2017, shortly after the podcast aired for the first time. So I'm excited to bring Steven back on the show today, talk about private offers, of securities and how those are impacted with the new opportunity zone. So really fun and interesting discussion today. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. All right, today, welcome on the show, Mr. Steven Rinaldi. Stephen, hey, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Oh, you're welcome.
1: Hey, Stephen, you and I were just talking before we started this interview, and you have actually joined us in a previous episode way back in 2017 for episode 15. So it's been quite some time. Really excited to have you back on the show. So thanks so much for joining us
2: this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Yes. Well, Stephen, for those people who didn't catch Episode 15, will you just take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and who you are exactly?
2: I have my own law firm in downtown Bethesda. I concentrate all on business matters and intellectual property matters. And I have handled private offerings of securities. My gosh, now I got to say for about years.
1: (laughs) Yeah, good. And that's kind of where we're going to be taking the focus of today's conversation is private offerings of securities around real estate assets. So first off, just back up and tell us exactly what is a private offering? Why does it matter to real estate investors? And just take us way back and tell us a little bit about why that should should matter to real estate investors.
2: Well, you want to make sure you're in compliance with securities laws and regulations because unlike other areas of law, the consequences of not complying with securities law, laws, and regulations are drastic. <laughs> okay. Because you are personally liable. I don't care if you got an LLC, I don't care if you got a limited liability partnership, I don't care if you got a corporation, I don't care what your entity is, what kind of advice you've heard on entity structuring, those who Those who offer securities not in compliance with securities laws and regulations are personally liable for any errors or omissions made in the sale of the security.
1: Yeah. Okay. So many people out there are probably thinking, well, what exactly is a security? Am I offering a security? Am I not? I mean, really, I'm just raising money from friends and family to do real estate deals, right? So walk us through why that is applicable to real estate investors. All right. A
2: security is four simple things. You have to have all four to be a security. Number one, investment of money, which we obviously have. Doing a common enterprise, you get a property or set of properties. So we obviously have that. Number three, with an expectation of a profit. Well, nobody gives you money unless they're expecting a profit, you know, this isn't a charity, tricky part. Number four, to be derived in whole or substantial part from the efforts of the promoter. Now, what does that mean? Well, if the promoter is the only one who can lease the apartments, if the promoter is the only one who can go out and hire the carpenters, the plumbers, the electricians, the paving company, if the plumber is the only one who can advertise, who can enter into negotiations with a bank for a loan, uh, you've got the fourth element. you got that element where the person who's giving money, even if they have a vote, they really lack realistic control over the enterprise.
1: Yeah, sure. So it sounds like those four elements of a security are very easily checked by most real estate syndications especially.
2: Yes. And every every single syndication is a security, every one.
1: Okay. So now that we understand what a security is, what do real estate investors have to do to make sure they're abiding by these laws?
2: There are two things. The general rule of securities law is all offerings are deemed public offerings, unless they're not. Now, okay. I- <laughs> so it's a private offering. Because you don't want to go into the public offering realm because that costs over a million dollars in accountants and lawyers fees for the SEC. So you do not want to go there. What you want to do is look at one of several exemptions. You could say, well, let me use the Rule 504 exemption. An offering of five million or less, unlimited number of investors, is exempt from SEC registration. Note, it's not exempt from anti-fraud rules. The problem with 504 is the rules vary from state to state, and you may have to register in specific states. For that reason, I don't do many 504 offerings, and I don't counsel clients to go 504. The 504 route, because you don't want to have to write two different private placement memoranda for two different states. That's more expensive. An easier alternative is the 506B option. There, if you make an offer to 35 or fewer unaccredited, but sophisticated investors and an unlimited number of accredited investors, you can raise an unlimited dollar amount and not be a public offering. But the regulation says each unaccredited investor has to get a private placement memorandum. And the law says you have to disclose all material information to investors. So what that means in reality is everybody should be getting a PPM. But Accredited or unaccredited in a 506B offering.
1: I think it's important really quickly to just define those two terms, sophisticated and accredited for the audience members that might not be keen on what those actually mean to the Securities and the Exchange Commission. So could you do that for
2: us really quickly? Sure. Accredited is a very easy definition. It's right set out in the regulation. A bank, broker-dealer, a mutual fund company, an insurance company, registered small business development company, a corporation or LLC or partnership with assets of $5 million or more, a trust fund. With assets of $5 million or more, an individual with a husband and wife with assets of a million or more, not counting the house, the life insurance, and the cars. And cars, okay. I didn't know that. Yes, cars do not count. Because if not, somebody's got two Range Rovers, could say, could get you know, that 200000 of the uh, million. Sure, okay and a husband and wife with income over 300000 a year, and you've got every expectation that's going to continue, or just an individual with income over 200000 a year, and you've got every expectation that's going to continue. So accredited is a hard definition to meet. Most friends and family don't fall under that, especially when you start to subtract the house, the life insurance, and the cars. Sophisticated is trickier because that is not defined they at all, at all, at all. So that's kind of an I know it when I see it. I would say an attorney who's done business transactions or real estate transactions is sophisticated. An accountant who has real estate or business clients is sophisticated. A financial planner, someone who's done real estate investing themselves, particularly multifamily, even if it's like two or three unit apartment in Baltimore, that kind of thing. Sure. Okay. Be sophisticated. Doctor, not necessarily. Yeah, because it's
1: unrelated and they might be a high net worth individual or a high income earner, but not necessarily related to real estate investing, right?
2: Exactly. So sophisticated, I think generally means in that industry or close to it.
1: Sure. Okay. And so obviously accredited is a very black and white term, but sophisticated gets into this gray area. of Is someone sophisticated? Is it not? And it kind of leaves the rules are kind of left open to interpretation a bit. So kind of a unnerving kind of gray area, especially for people who really like that black and white, yes or no type uh, environment. So What do you see when people are looking to raise money from sophisticated investors? Where do you caution people? Where do you tell them to?
2: I ask them what kind of background do they have in multifamily real estate or just do you own rental properties? Well, what kind of background do you have there if you're an attorney? What's your background in business or what's your background in commercial real estate? Uh, Again, if you're an accountant, I would ask that. Uh, Financial planner, what kind of clients do you have in this area? Simple questions you can at least start to glean, start to make things a little clearer to yourself.
1: Sure, I understand. So going to this 506B, this is an exemption to the securities and exchange rules, I guess you would call it, right? It's an exemption
2: to public offerings. Nobody is exempt from the anti-fraud rule and the duty to disclose all material information.
1: All right, sure. So going into this 506B, tell us a little bit more about it and how it can be beneficial to people raising money for real estate transactions. Okay,
2: let's say you want to purchase a multifamily apartment building for $3 million. And let's say the bank will loan you 2 million. The bank wants you to come up with a million. And let's say you have 200,000 in cash available. Well, you can raise 800,000 from 35 or fewer unaccredited investors and an unlimited number of accredited investors. So if you can bring in 16 people at $50,000, you're there. People at $100,000, better, yeah. Even go up Let's say, 32 people at $25,000. So it really, it basically enables you to multiply. If not, you just have your $200,000, in which case the lender's going to say, oh, we'll make you lower $400,000. You go buy a couple of row houses in Baltimore and rehab them. Sure. <laughs> so it's a multiplier effect. It enabled you to acquire a bigger property than you otherwise could. And of course, when you go to refinance the loan in seven, eight years, you might be enough equity in to cash out the investors or partially cash them out, partially redeem them. Yes.
1: Okay. And now, what kind of relationships do you have to have with these potential investors in a 506B?
2: That is a tricky question. That's another area that the SEC did not define. They want you to have some type of prior relationship. If you've met and known the person in ARIA over a couple of years, that's fantastic. If you've gone to various multifamily training sessions on how to invest in multifamily property and you've networked with people and you've interacted with them over a couple of months, that would work. If it's a friend of a friend of a friend, you better take some time talking to them, at least four or five lengthy conversations as to what their investment goals are, why multifamily, what they hope to get out of it and understanding, hey, the securities are private, you can't just go ahead and resell them tomorrow. Yeah, sure. Publicly traded on an exchange.
1: So you really need an established relationship with every person you're going to be raising money for in this type of offering. Right. Whether that's a good, true, long, lifelong friend, or maybe an acquaintance that you've met a year ago at a RIA meeting or a real estate investing conference, or whatever it might be, and maybe you've established a relationship that way, or things like that, but it's one of those kind of gray areas that the SEC doesn't quite define. So once again, puts you in that gray area of really having to make sure that you truly do, in fact, have a relationship with this person. Right.
2: I wish they would define. Just again, <laughs> I wish they would define prior relationship, but they never have. Not for gosh twenty. 20- 7 years. Yeah, okay. So
1: anything else you know one should know about the 506b offering?
2: Those are the key elements of 50 of a 506b offering. Obviously, you have to file form D with the SEC and every state in which you have investors in. And what is that form? It's a pretty simple 12-16 page form. <laughs> I got it file a request to get electronic keys to file with the SEC. The SEC gives me my keys. Up comes the form. I type it all out and I send it in. I print it out, also scan it in, and then I send it to the various state securities agencies. I have to go through their electronic filing as well. Sure. Okay. And
1: that brings up a good question, Stephen, is who can you raise money for in terms of residencies, non-residents, U.S. citizens only, people from different states? Where are there uh, restrictions? You can
2: raise money from anybody. The only time you have a wacky situation is S-Corps can't have non-U.S. citizens.
1: Okay. So you can raise money from both citizens and
2: non-citizens? Yes, exactly. Now, if you're going to raise from a non-citizen, you've got to comply with that country's securities laws. done offerings in Hong Kong, Thailand, Singapore, and India. And there, they all had one common rule. Their rule was 50 investors, whether it or not.
1: Okay. So you just have to make sure you're abiding by that potential investor's home country's laws as well as ours. Yeah. Okay. Right.
2: It's not just where the property is. Securities laws are based on where the investor is. So if you're buying a property in Idaho and you've got Washington investors, you got a Washington form defiling. If you get somebody from Hong Kong, you've got to put the Hong Kong sticker label in the, the PPM. And Hong Kong did not have a filing. They just wanted the sticker on the PPM.
1: Yeah, sure. A good question that I wanted to ask you, Stephen, and this is something I have heard recently that was news to me, but if you're raising money from sophisticated, unaccredited investors, I've heard something along the lines that you have to have your personal financial statements audited every year. Is there any truth in that or do I have that
2: exactly right? No, but if you want to verify somebody's accredited status, the SEC has tightened that up such that they want you to contact their financial planner and get a net worth statement or contact their accountant and get a net worth statement statement. It need not be audited. You'll get a letter from the person's attorney saying they're accredited. They don't have to go quite as far as the audit yet.
1: Okay, but nothing in terms of getting your own, as the real estate investor sponsors, personal financial statements audited. There's no requirement no, there. No, Okay.
2: <laughs> if you are doing a fund, then you need to have audited financial statements to comply with the Investment Advisors Act. You're probably going to be an inv- a registered investment advisor. Okay. Sure. If you want to do funds to acquire four or five buildings? There, you're looking at having to get audited statements every year. Sure. Okay. Understand.
1: So, we've got the 506B, and there are actually a couple other offerings that are applicable to syndications, right? So, what are those? Yes.
2: You could do a 506C offering, which is accredited only, no unaccredited, you can advertise 506C, and it's an unlimited dollar amount. If you look at the plain text of Regulation D, you could say, well, gee, these people are accredited. I don't have to give them a PPM. But if you look at the law, we have to disclose all material information, and you can't omit anything that might be material. In reality, you should be giving them everybody a private placement memorandum.
1: And let's go into really quickly what that private placement memorandum entails to the investor.
2: It tells them everything about the investment. It tells them the mortgage, the monthly repayment on the mortgage. It tells them the vacancies, the number of units. It tells them, hey, are you going to raise rents when a, an apartment turns over? You're going to bring in the new appliances, bring in the new floor, and then raise the rent by 150 a month? Do you have to redo the roof? You have to redo the parking lot. It tells them what are the tax consequences of the investment. Very importantly, it tells them the uh, for motors prior history, what other multifamily investments have they done? Have they made money on them over the last three years? So this is really
1: a form to kind of equip the potential investor to make an investment decision with all of the relevant material necessary.
2: Absolutely.
1: And so no matter what offering, you have to have the private placement memorandum 506B, 506C. But there are a couple differences in those two in that you can raise money from only accredited investors in the 506C. Right,
2: but you can advertise in 506C. Sure.
1: So you don't have to have that prior established relationship. These can't no. be truly strangers.
2: Right, but it would pay, behoove you if you're going to advertise to engage the services of a broker-dealer because they're the ones who have the client lists.
1: Sure. Okay, understand.
2: Charge your commission for
1: that. So it sounds that most people, the large majority of investors actually go through a 506B when offering private securities for real estate syndications.
2: Yeah, I've seen about 90% 506B and maybe 10% 506C.
1: And so is there any difference when you're raising money for a specific asset versus, like you alluded to earlier, a fund, maybe a certain type of asset, but it's not one that's identified yet. Any differences in- Fund is very different because
2: it is it is a fund. While it is not while it is not a mutual fund because it has less than 100 investors total, so it doesn't have to comply with yet another area of securities laws called the Investment Company Act. But there are certain disclosures in a fund type PPM that you would put in that you would not put into just a one-off property PPM. You're going to put in, are they using a registered investment advisor? What's the compensation to the registered investment advisor? Uh, you're going to put in, what's the fund's targets? Remember, the fund doesn't yet have a property. What are they looking for? Which metropolitan areas? What types of unemployment rates are they looking for in those metropolitan areas? What's the vacancy? Like We will not invest in anything that's not 90% lease stock, for example fund closing a lot of parameters whereas in a property it's like hey it's 98% lease today as of this day you're bringing in the money and then you're going out to acquire the def- Strategy is great because you can just walk right into the bank and say, I got X amount in cash. I want to look, I'm putting in contracts on these 10 properties. What will you lend me? This is what I want to put down in each of the 10 out of the fund. Yeah.
1: Okay. Makes sense. So there are some fundamental differences in investing in a specific asset versus investing in a fund. So well, we've alluded to the PPM, what other documents are required when in doing all this paperwork, preparing for a 506B offering, let's say?
2: You obviously got to form the Delaware Limited Liability Company qualify it in that particular state where the property is, write the operating agreement, write the subscription agreement, and I previously mentioned Form D as well.
1: Right. So you have the operating agreement, the subscription agreement, the private placement memorandum, in addition to Form D. So those are the four big ones. Okay. Well, Stephen, with the recent Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, are there any things that came out of that 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 affect how you would raise money for private offerings of securities?
2: It didn't so much affect securities laws at all, at all, at all. What the Tax Cut and Job Act did though is basically created this category called Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Funds.
1: Yeah, that's a big buzz in the industry lately. So let's dig into there. I'm pretty incompetent on that subject. So I'll be learning right along with the listeners here. Tell us exactly what are opportunity zones and what changed with this recent
2: tax law? Okay, each state has the right to designate 25 lower income census tracts in that state as an opportunity zone. What that means is if you own property outside of that opportunity zone and you sell that property to buy opportunity zone stock, opportunity zone partnership interest, and those include LLC interest or opportunity zone business property then you defer capital gains on your the sale of your property to do that so it's very broad only like 1031 which is you sell the property and you buy a like property this one you can sell property and you can buy stock or you can buy LLC membership interest in addition to property so this opens things up a little more
1: Okay. And when you say 25, like each state designates 25 tracks as a track, yes. uh, a lot? Is it a square city block? Is
2: it- it's a census tract. So it's a whole bunch of lots. Every state has a database. Okay, It's accessible online.
1: So you could, in theory, sell your interest in an asset, real estate, a business, whatever that is. Or no, it is only property, right? You can only sell property to
2: Roland. You could sell stock even to buy opportunity zone property. You could sell LLC of interest to buy opportunity zone property. It just okay. completely.
1: All right. And so what would be some advantages of that besides obviously deferring capital gains? Anything else there?
2: That's a huge advantage right there. That's the biggest tax advantage. Also, the basis you can, you know, can can be stepped up after ten years. If you hold it for ten years, basis steps right up to what it would be on that ten year day. So that lowers your overall tax burden as well. And
1: what do you mean by that exactly?
2: All right, basis, when you pay taxes, okay? the IRS taxes you on your gain. Gain is the difference between your basis and what you sold it at. If I hold the property for 10 years and the basis reevaluates in 10 years, that wipes out a considerable amount of the tax burden because properties usually, not always, but usually appreciate. So let's say I buy multifamily, I put down a million dollars, $3 million property with a $2 million bank loan in an opportunity zone. It's 2019, it's 2029, I'm still holding it. That property now is worth 4 million, okay? Or no, I put a million down, my basis has increased by another million. See what I'm saying is that bank loan at 2 million, that's not basis, that's repayment to the bank. Sure, okay. Basically, I've wiped out a considerable chunk of the You know, When I go to sell, it may be very, very little tax owing. It's a huge, if you can hang on to it for 10 years, it could be a huge game changer. And also, it's going to stimulate investment in a lot of lower-income communities.
1: Sure, and that's the idea behind offering these opportunity zones to the states. They're able to direct investment capital to the areas they want to develop and invest outside capital to these zones, right?
2: Yeah, opportunity zones rule. I mean, 90% of the fund has to be in Opportunity Zone properties or Opportunity Zone stock, Opportunity Zone LLC interests.
1: Yeah, sure, Stephen. Now, that brings the question, could one, in theory, say, sell their small multifamily duplex or whatever it might be outside an Opportunity Zone and go invest in another duplex inside an Opportunity Zone by themselves?
2: Yes, you can, but it's a big bot. (laughs) <laughs> okay. The IRS has a very big button. This they'll let you do it, but you have to substantially improve the property.
1: Me, one of those gray areas by
2: substantially. This isn't gray at all. This is white, but it's like hitting people with a sledgehammer—black and white. <laughs> really, the best way to do it is give you an example. Let's say you sell your duplex for two hundred thousand dollars. You sell your duplex for two hundred. You get a hundred thousand. You pay the bank a hundred thousand back. Properties appreciated. Okay. So you take your hundred thou, you buy a two hundred thousand dollar duplex in Baltimore, you want to renovate it and rehab it. The IRS says, Great, fine and wonderful, let you do this, but you're gonna throw in a hundred thou worth of improvements. Whatever you put in equity wise, you have to basically double it. In terms of improvements. You substantially improve the property to qualify for the capital gains deferral. Where it gets gray, where well, the IRS has given wiggle room is if you're going property to property, the IRS says just substantially all of your properties have to be in the opportunity zone. That means the IRS has interpreted that to be 70%. So you can have 30% of the properties outside of the opportunity zone. If you're doing like one LLC for 10 properties, you've got seven opportunity zone properties that you substantially substantially. substantially improved, you can keep the other three in that LLC and qualify for capital gains deferral.
1: Okay. So there are some caveats to what you can do on an individual basis when you're right. investing in these opportunity zones. Sure. Well, I know that's been a really hot topic lately in the industry of people moving capital to opportunity zones and really trying to defer those capital gains without having to do that 1031 tax deferred exchange. Now, I guess maybe the benefit of doing this over a 1031 is I guess it's a little bit less burdensome or gives you more opportunities to invest in certain areas. Because like you said, with that 1031, you have to identify Buy three properties and purchase one of those three. With the opportunity zone, you're just restricted to a certain geographical region.
2: So You can take your cash out of a property and buy stock in an opportunity zone business. You can buy LLC membership units or partnership units in an opportunity zone partnership or LLC, or you can buy a property. And The beauty is down the road, if you get enough properties, along comes the large publicly traded REIT. And when they acquire you, they don't acquire property by property. They do a stock swap. They do a tax-free stock swap. So it makes it easier for a large entity to buy you out. Whereas 1031, you do a 1031 exchange, you got 1031 property and you know, it's you can't really get out of it stock-wise at that point. Sure.
1: Now, Stephen, do you have a resource where people can go to find where these opportunity zones are exactly?
2: Every state Their economic development agency, or it would be consumer agency, but usually it's the economic, will have a list. Usually, if a a commercial real estate broker has an Opportunity zone property—they'll let everybody know about it. They're sure to let you know. Yeah, okay. It's just going to be paid. It's going to be right on the front page of their uh, of their property brochure.
1: Sure. Well, Stephen, hey, it's been good recapping and revisiting the private offerings of securities around real estate assets and exploring this new opportunity zone, which is a new thing for many people listening, I'm sure. So, what else would you have to tell listeners about? Any kind of news or information about investing in? in these private offerings of securities?
2: Uh, Be cautious. Obviously, hire an attorney who has handled a lot of private offerings in the past. Make absolutely certain that it is a security. Don't they well, you know, maybe if I give people a vote, it won't be a security. I mean, I own a lot of publicly traded stock. I get a vote. I'm voted by 50 million to one by CalPERS and the other pension funds. Oh, but I have no control. People trip up as somebody tells them, oh, it's not a security if you give somebody a vote. Well, if they're outvoted on everything, what control do they have? Yeah, good point. Big stumbling point. The other stumbling point is if you're going to do a fund and you have unaccredited investors in that fund, you may need to hire a registered investor advisor who's been registered in that state tends to be a starting point there
1: yeah as you mentioned earlier in the show you are personally liable no matter what whether you're investing in any kind of entity or llc or s Corps, c core no matter what you are personally liable so it's really worth your time to have somebody like yourself on their team helping with preparing this private offering for securities so
2: absolutely you do want to have investors come back at you and say, oh, that investment was a security, because then at that point, they don't even need to hire an attorney. They just call the securities division and the securities division will investigate. And every state securities agency is a profit center for the state government. <laughs> like the IRS. Even more so than the IRS because it's 100% collection. It's fraud. You can't take bankruptcy to get around a judgment that you violated securities laws because that's fraud. You're personally liable. So all your assets, including your entire home equity, all your savings, all your investments get roped in. And because it's the state, state takes preference over your mortgage company even. Yeah. Okay. Good to know there. So you're in default of your personal mortgage on your house by, by mucking up in this area? Ever come in ahead of the bank or credit union or whoever made you the loan?
1: So moral of this story is it's vitally important to have somebody knowledgeable and reputable on your team helping you handle these types of scenarios like yourself. So what advice would you have to investors who are thinking about raising money, even if it's just from friends and family members or, you know, a few coworkers or whatever that might be? What advice would you have to those people when they're looking to start doing this? What kind of Quality should they look for?
2: Go well, out, talk to securities attorneys ahead of time. Obviously, you know, get what services they offer. I work on a flat fee basis. I'll give you a quote, and I won't exceed that quote unless you want additional services. It's very much kind of my model is very much a construction pricing type model. Go talk to them and get quotes, and make sure that when you engage the time to engage a securities attorney is right when you get that property under contract. You may only have 45 days or 60 days to get to closing. You want to give them a head start.
1: Yeah, sure. So like you said, go and talk to this SEC attorney before you've kind of maybe got that deal under contract. Kind of get those ducks lined up before you put that timer on yourself. You've only got 45 to 60 days to really make everything come together.
2: Right. And then once you, after, after you've pre-qualified them, once you are about to get that property under contract two or three days before, there's complete agreement on the price and all the, and the terms. It's just a matter of the commercial real estate broker getting everybody to sign. That's when you engage the SEC attorney.
1: Sure. Well, Stephen, hey, it's been a lot of fun having you on, catching up, talking the landscape of the SEC laws in today's environment, talking about those new opportunity zones. I'm sure it's a new thing to many people listening. So if people have any questions, comments, want to learn more, maybe reach out to you for advice or your services,
2: where's the best place for them to do so? They can uh, contact me by email at S-T-E-V-E-N-D-R-I-N-A-L-D-I at MSN.com, or they can call me directly at 240 481
1: All right. We'll link that contact information in the show notes, Stephen. Thanks for that. Now wrapping up, any last minute parting piece of advice you'd like to leave with our audience members before we wrap up for today?
2: Have fun. Do diligence on the property. Make sure, go out with a really good multifamily commercial property inspector. Make sure you know if you, what you're getting into. If you're going to have to replace the roof, make sure you know that. If there are a lot of vacancies because they haven't marketed it properly and it's you know, the property's been in family three generations, let me know that. The more extensive due diligence you do, the better the PM I'm going to write and the more covered you are.
1: Perfect. Good to know. Well, Stephen, hey, thanks for that. It's been a lot of fun having you on the show today. Look forward to having you back on in the near future for the third time.
2: Great. Thank you very much,
1: Jacob. All right. Thank you, Stephen. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Stephen Rinaldi. Hey, for more information and resources about anything we mentioned in the show, you can find those in the show notes. And as always, you can feel free to reach out to me at www.jacobayers.com where you can find more information, resources, and
0: connect with me. Well, till next week, engineer the lifestyle you want.